Hello, I'm Mark Petruzzi, host of Selling the Cloud podcast. And I'm Ray Reich, your co-host of the show. We talk to a wide variety of cloud and SaaS industry thought leaders and revenue generation experts. Who share their unique insight into what is required to build and grow a great business in the cloud. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of Selling the Cloud podcast. I'm your host, Mark Petruzzi, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ray Reich. And today we are excited to have as our guest, Eileen Voynick, who is a multiple-time executive of the board, chairperson of the board member, and also one of the original developers of the customer success program. She was able to do that at both Oracle and SAP. Today, we'll be covering three main areas, a little bit about the evolution of customer success, a deeper dive about the customer experience and customer relationship management, and how this evolved over the years from some of the initial programs and pilots. And we'll go into her vast background as a board member, board of director, and talk about digital transformation into that space, and particularly in the healthcare space, where Eileen has an incredible background as well. So, Eileen, if you could start us off a little bit, tell us a little bit more about your journey, which brings you to us today on the Selling the Cloud podcast. Well, great, Mark. Thanks for that quick intro. And that's a lot of area for us to cover over the next 30 minutes. Quick background for me. I've been in technology and software for over 30 years. Really began my journey when I was at SAP. We were less than 100 million in revenue here in the United States. And I was with them till we were over, you know, several billion dollars. So that was a real growth journey for me, really at where I went from being a manager to a true leader and customer success, although we didn't call it that back in the late 90s, Y2K, uh, was really at the heart of everything that I've done. And the reason that I say that is, you know, if you're not delivering value to a customer, there's just no sense to it. And I look at technology as a means to the end. It's not the end to itself. And what we really did in the early days at SAP is we had given over the implementations to all of our partners, the integrators at the time. And we really lost account control and we really didn't have any oversight on quality. And what we created was really a first time ecosystem where we were going to do about 30% of the work so that we could be engaged in architecting the solutions making sure that the product was being used correctly and ensuring customer success. So we developed something called ASAP, Accelerated SAP. And that became the blueprint on the way every integrator would have a framework to bring and drive value. Now, the integrators didn't like it at first because they were all rolling the school buses in with you know many, many, many consultants and spending a lot of time documenting the as-is. And, and we moved them along into let's get them to the 2B and let's get things that are really non-competitive advantage, things like accounts payable. Let's just get it done and really focus on competitive advantage. So I moved on from there. I was at Siebel. I was at Oracle. I was at Ariba. At Siebel, we developed the customer experience blueprint, which really focused on outcomes again. And actually, we received a patent for that myself and my team, which was really an exciting piece. And then ultimately, 
was with Allscript, and my last stop was at Sparta Systems, which is an enterprise quality management software company, and left there in 2017. We sold the company twice, and very proud to announce that Honeywell just bought it in December for $1.3 billion. So we achieved our goal of reaching that over a billion dollar mark. So that's a little bit about me. Now I sit on boards. That's incredible. And Eileen, it doesn't sound like you have slept much over the last 20 years or so, but uh, you are amazing. And it's incredible. The interesting thing to me is, you know, knowing Claus Bessier and what he built with bringing great individuals like yourself on board. You know, he, he is so proud of that channels, alliances approach that he built with the big four at the time, the big five or six at the time. And, you know, the relationships with Anderson and Deloitte and others. But, you know, all of that, as you mentioned briefly, came a bit of a price. It was great to have all that increased revenue and velocity in the market. But you were the one behind the scenes really pulling this all together and making sure that the train stayed on the tracks. So, yeah, if you can go a little deeper into that experience about, you know, how did it start? You made it all about the customer right from the beginning, which is really, again, why you're one of the real creators and drivers of what every SaaS and cloud software company does today, and that is invest heavily into customer success. So take us a little deeper into, you know, how you initially viewed it how you built it around the customer, and then what worked and didn't work back then, and maybe a little bit about what you see working today as well. You know, I I think you make a good point. Klaus did a phenomenal job really lining up the partners. The real challenge is when you have an ecosystem, everybody has to win. So partners have to win, the customer has to win, the software provider. So I really worked on the goal that we did something called co-optition. And co-optition is really about maintaining that balance. So I had a love-hate relationship with the partners. and But I knew that I needed to work with them, not against them. So, you know, I had to be the one that kind of dropped the gamut that, you know, you can't go in there and just spend way too much money. We know how overpriced some of the early projects were, and they really weren't successful. So to me, really, when you got to the SAP time, and again, I'm going back to the mainframe client server days, is how do you configure the software? We were moving out of a time period where people customize things. And it was very, very important to focus on what made the business special. So as I mentioned earlier, whether it's accounts payable or purchasing, that's not a competitive advantage. So to spend all this time creating processes that are unique to one business where a best practice would better serve it, Those were the things that we worked on, is really understanding what made and what was important to a company and what gave them an advantage and keeping the company focused on that, really understanding not just what the project team wanted, but I had relationships at the very senior levels of these organizations, CFOs, CIOs, and in some cases, even the CEO, to really understand what is their strategic objective and how can technology assist them in that. And again, when you go back to the late 90s, technology sometimes got put up on its own pedestal. And it was really saying, hey, it's the people, process, and technology. And you can't just write a big check and then, you know, go to the golf club and brag about, you know, the new systems that you put in place when in fact you weren't really getting what was needed. And I think what's changed over time is that people do accept best practice today, more so than we did, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And now today, again, it gets back to 
how do you take the technology and get benefit from it? If you think about the cloud, now I've seen, I moved from the mainframe, you know, to client server, to web-based technology. Now we have the cloud, I'm involved in blockchain, which is another really interesting technology that we have on the horizon. But if you think about what the cloud has done, is it's brought something better, faster, cheaper to everyone. So the entry into technology is easier, it's safer. I know when I was dealing with all the pharmaceutical companies and we were trying to bring supplier automation to the table, people didn't want to put things in the cloud. And so I would go into their offices and they would be faxing information, you know, confidential information. And I would just pick the thing off the fax machine and say, you think this is safer than the cloud? Really? <laughs> I mean, can pick up the fax, right? But, you know, it has helped a lot. It really creates all those baseline utilities that people like Microsoft and AWS do really well so that a software company can really just get started on what's going to make their software a competitive advantage. So from development of software, the cloud helps for small companies, the security that you get from the cloud is really, really important. You know, as I think about my role of sitting on boards today, one of the areas I'm a lifelong learner that I'm focusing on is cybersecurity. And every company needs to put much, much more focus on what are they doing to monitor it and how are they reporting on it? There are so many bad actors out there today that, you know, again, if you weren't in the cloud, can you imagine if every company had to develop these techniques on an on-premise on environment today. So the cloud is, it's an enabler, whether you be a user, a consumer, a developer, and it just puts so much in our hands today. And, you know, the next step is really going to be the data insights that we're going to get. And there's so many great tools that are out there. And this is all because we're building upon a technology. Charlene, let's double click into the evolution of the customer experience. Because if you look at the traditional kind of ERP, these were seven, eight, nine figure investments for yes. Fortune 1000 companies. And the switching costs were very high, as you well know. In today's cloud environment, switching costs apparently is supposed to be much lower. So customer experience and customer satisfaction has a higher premium. Do you agree with that, number one? And number two, how do you see cloud companies treating customer experience and customer centricity different than traditional enterprise software vendors? Yeah, I think that's a good point, right? The first thing I would say is stickiness and the cost of moving. The answer I'm going to give you is it depends. So if you're working with a project-oriented product, let's say, you know, your clinical trials and you use software for project to project, your switching costs might be a little bit lower. But if you're in a regulated industry, such as healthcare and life sciences and financial services, the amount of regulatory requirements that go on top of what the cloud is already providing in terms of validation, for example, can make it very, very difficult. So I think certain solutions are easier to switch out. And I tend to look at ones that tend to be project oriented. You can pay for by a credit card versus someone who's going to make a huge investment in software, whether it be cloud or on-prem. And they're looking at it as a CapEx exposure. So I think that when I look at what's different today, we all know that the retention rate is the number one thing. Are you retaining your customers? And, and you're only going to be able to do that is you really make sure that they're getting value and they're using your product. So I don't know that things have changed as much as people are more focused on it than they were in the past. And it's things like 
you know, really going in and ensuring that they're getting value. So a couple of the boards that I sit on, we have people that go in and, and they know how they should be getting a return on investment. And they do sort of a report card for the customer and a benchmark. And we all know we all want to be number one. And although you may not be sharing who you're benchmarking them against, if you go in and say, hey, this particular process, in the case of my last company, maybe the way you handled consumer complaints and your turnaround time and your response rate is below the norm, boy, that'll get the attention of the senior leaders in the company very, very quickly. And then you go in and you can show them ways that they can use the technology. And again, you'll always hear me say technology is an enabler. It's not the full solution unto itself. Those are the things that make a difference today. And I think that the companies who truly have the right people in their customer success organization, I'm looking for them to have the ability to continue to sell and build relationships, but they have to be able to bring some value to the table to really help that customer get more from the software that they're using today. And those are the companies that are successful. I always encourage creating what I call a customer journey map. And that says from the time the customer touches your website to the time that they're fully implemented, what are all the steps, who are all of the people that touch that customer? And what are the milestones? What are the points that you better be checking in with that customer, not waiting to the day that it's a renewal that's due? Because those are the points, and they're different for every company, that you know that you want to check in, you want to make sure things are going well. And again, you have to do it smartly. You may be touching your large customers in person or by phone. And today with the pandemic, we've all learned to do those things via Zoom quite well. Or how do you have electronic touch points? Are there ways that you can be measuring utilization of the software in the background that you can get triggers to come along and to make a connection? So that's an important part. The renewal process, when I go into an organization and they tell me that they're calling the customer, you know, 30 to 60 days before the renewal date, I know that we're dead on the It's just, that's not when you touch. You're touching when things are at critical junctures. So that customer journey map is something that I've been using probably for the last five or six years pretty effectively. And Eileen, what's incredible hearing that, you know, description is, you, you know, you've always been forward thinking and you've always tried to, you know, think of the problems before they become problems and think of solutions before the problems kick in. And, you know, that's one thing I'm really so impressed by. If I look at your career in, at SMP and Oracle or Maria Martinez, who is also on Selling the Cloud, one of our cloud titans, and what she did at Microsoft even before salesforce.com. And you and her, as two examples, you built a model around customer success before anyone asked you to. Even your CEOs at that point were not worrying because I can tell you firsthand, as I worked more on the sales side and with the sales leaders and the sales reps, then when it was mainframe and client server, you know, it was, it was gunslinging. You know, right. the best sales reps were so proud when they can get in, close a deal and disappear and never have to hear from that company again, even though in many cases that organization never became happy with the purchase, never were satisfied. So the fact that you built those types of approaches, built the baseline for customer success before it was really necessary is very impressive and exciting to me. When you look at that, though, and you look at what companies need today, you know, what's next around the customer? How do you find that next forward thought to be able to say, 
this is something we have to do to be able to do it, do it now, because we're going to need it in two years for sure. Yeah. And that touches a little bit into product management strategy. And, you know, over the years, I always had customer insight groups. We all call them different things to really be on a steering committee to help you decide what will be in the product next. And I think over the last couple of years, it became less of a feature function more and more about user experience. And, you know, I know the first time I brought in a group of UX folks, it was actually in the healthcare area. And I was meeting with a group of chief medical officers from major academic medical centers. And they came to the meeting, they were going to tell me how the screen should look and what we should be doing next. And I brought these very young people because they were fresh out of college. They were user experience gurus. And they walked in in their crazy outfits and everybody's outfits and shirts and ties. And they said, just sit down. They gave them iPads and said, just walk me through a clinical experience. And they're like, whoa, whoa, no, I'm going to tell you this should be moved to here. And this, they said, no, let me just watch you do your work. And then we came back a month later and they had redesigned just based upon, and they did go out into the clinical environment and actually sat in in clinical experiences. And what they created for these doctors was amazing. And it shocked them. It was, wow, you just watched me do my work and you figured out how you can make the experience better for me. So I think user experience, whether you're the consumer of it or the developer of it is very, very important. I mentioned data insights. I think that data is going to become so important going forward. I don't care what your business is of what insights can you take from the data and really help make your customer better. And I think those are two very, very important things. The third one, and I touched on it, is cybersecurity. I mean, we see the headlines of the things that are happening. You know, those bad actors are attacking business systems every single day. And I think our ability to really show that we can protect people's data and information while making it more useful to them is going to be something that's going to be very, very important. So I think it's that experience. It's about data insights, security. And again, not the technical behind the scenes, but how is that day-to-day consumer or user of the product going to have the confidence and, and get more value? It's always, it always comes back to value, Mark. And, you know, I've often said that when I first got involved in software, you're right, the salespeople were really, you know, one-time show, go in and sell. And, you, you know, I partnered up with your co-author, Paul Melchiori, and the way I would describe it is, you know, he, he was certainly out there in the wild, wild west that he would break down the doors and yep. walls. I mean, he could get me in and then he would turn around and go, where's I? Because I need her to come in now and sell them out there <laughs> as he was jumping on a plane to knock down the next door. So next we one. partnered really, really well. And he did, you know, he did care about his customers, which is why he was so successful. And yeah. me, I just, it's in my nature that I just really care about people. And yeah, I just do. don't have it in my DNA not to make sure that you get value from whatever it is that I'm involved in. And maybe that's just too many years of Catholic school. Who knows? <laughs> you know, and it's, and you're right. You know, when it comes down to it, Paul is one of those gunslingers that gunslinged when it was appropriate to do it. And really when it was built that way and he had to do it. 
But then, you know, probably through learning from you over the years and, you know, a little bit of Catholic school himself, you know, he looked at it and said, now there's got to be more here. And, you know, he always has gone the extra level from a relationship standpoint for his customers as well. So, Ray, I'm going to switch a question over to you, if you don't mind, because I know you really have a strong point of view here. When it comes down to customer success and a sales team, who should have ownership of an account? You know, when it comes down to it, after it's sold. So deal sold, there's a, you know, a CRO that may or may not have the lead person in customer success reporting to he or she. When it comes down to it, who should own it at the end of the day? And what are some of the things that need to really happen to build those relationships over time? Yeah, I'm going to provide you my feedback from all the benchmarking we do of B2B SaaS and cloud companies. And I would love Eileen to kind of follow on to this. So Customer success as an organization didn't exist 15 years ago. You had professional services, and then you maybe had account management, but it wasn't a land and expand model as it is in the cloud today, nearly as much. So customer success has went from two to four, now averaging almost 11% of revenue is being consumed by customer success costs. And there's still um, an evolution of what customer success primary responsibility is. So I firmly believe that they own customer satisfaction and value along with the product team and the entire company, but they make sure that the customer knows how to use the solution or getting value out of it. They should even be monitoring things like Dow over Mal or daily active usage or over monthly active usage to see if there's really usage that aligns to value. However, in my experience, I find also making customer success the primary organization responsible for identifying, nurturing, and closing upsell and cross-sell opportunities is a mistake. I think it's a close teamwork between the customer success professional who's ensure the client is satisfied and receiving value, and whether it's the salesperson responsible for growing that account, or if you're big enough and you have an account management group, and account management responsible for it, I think it needs to be a team-based approach, not a either or. And Eileen, I wonder if you see the same thing. Do you think it's more of a team in this land and expand model, or do you think CS owns everything around customer relationship? Yeah, right. I agree with everything that you said. And I don't think, again, there's one simple answer. I think it has a lot to do with the sales orientation of a company. In my last role as CEO, I had a saying that everyone was in sales. Because, you know, the account owner is the quarterback, but everybody else plays on the team at different points in time. So we even had a support organization that looked at the pipeline because I wanted them, if we were trying to close three or four deals at the end of the quarter and they got a call from one of those customers, they wanted to know they were part of the team and they would sometimes come up to my office and say, hey, I talked to so-and-so and I was so glad I knew that there was something in the pipeline. So, yeah, I, I think that, Customer success, the way I look at my, whether you call it your chief customer officer, customer success manager, is that person has to be a really good facilitator and negotiator because they have to orchestrate and set priorities across the company without it reporting to them, right? So they've got to get product to do what product needs to do, support to do what they need to do. And they have to work around and with all these organizations. And, you know, I go back and forth on the land and expand. So I believe that, yes, depending on the size of your organization, my perfect model is I have hunters, which are the big game hunters who are going after the large 
new accounts. I have my farmers that are working the rest of the accounts and the land and expand. And then there's a customer success organization. Customer success should be able to do, you know, I want to buy a few more users or something of that accord. But when you get into a major upsell and very importantly, a cross sell, I think if you just leave it in the hands of customer success, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but they're facilitating, you know, they're making sure everything's working. You're going to miss opportunities. I'm on the board of one company and they, they were proud of their team because they said, they have a 90% close rate of everything that they put in the system on land and expand. And I said, then you're missing opportunities. And what it was when you dug under the covers is if the customer called and said, hey, tell me about that new application or I need a few more users, but they weren't really doing an account plan and looking at ways that we could strategically grow that account. And Mark, you've heard me say this more times than not. I only needed 1.5x pipeline coverage for land and expand. If it was a new logo, it was 3X. If it was a new industry to me, it was 5X. So to me, you're absolutely right. You can't have customer success working in a bubble. You can't have your account managers or farmers in a bubble. They all have to be working together. And I really think it comes from whether it's the CRO, personally, I think it goes all the way to the CEO of setting a sales-oriented, customer value-driven culture where everyone really understands the role that they play in making customers successful. And in many cases, it's supporting the organizations that are making the customers successful, right? Because if we wait until the customer tells us what they want, it's too late. I always say in software, we always have to skate to where the puck is going to be. So we have to be able to anticipate what the customer wants because if they're telling us today, you know, even with agile, by the time you really get that commercialized and productized, it's a bit of time. So I agree with you, Ray. And I, I just, I look at each circumstance and how I might structure day one may be different than the end game. Like I had the Sparta, when we started customer success, I had that VP report directly to me. But over time, my goal was to have that person report to the chief revenue officer. But I knew in the beginning, I was going to have to do a lot of blocking and tackling and changing of mind share within the organization. Yeah. Mark, if you don't mind, I'd love to just double click on this a little bit more because we're talking about the changing distribution and customer acquisition and then expansion process. Product-led growth is one of the newest phenomena out there in the cloud. And that is companies like Slack or Twilio, where people don't engage with sales up front. They engage with their freemium free trial, and then they grow. And here's what's interesting from a capitalist perspective. Net dollar retention, which is how much existing customers grow year over year, is now the number one correlation factor to enterprise value. In fact, the R squared or that correlation is at 0.4 and even revenue growth is only at 0.2. So existing customer growth is twice as impactful on company value as top line growth. Does that change the way we look at customer experience and customer success, Eileen? Yeah. I mean, as we talked about, there's still a lot of companies out there, Ray and Mark, that don't have a customer success organization. And, you know, I, and I won't name names, but I've been involved in a companies that were spin off from, let's say, large sales machines. And they just didn't put any value. They didn't even record retention. And you know, I've gone into those companies and we've built customer success teams. We've changed the value proposition. And to your point, 
you know, in one case, we sold the company for a huge, huge return that when it was originally purchased, because they didn't, they just didn't care about the customers. It was, well, we'll leave and we'll get another one tomorrow. So, you know, I think that it's becoming more important. You know, I work in the private equity world, so I see a lot of valuations, whether it's buying or selling. And, you know, yeah, people are looking at that retention. And, you know, I always spend a lot of time telling the land and expand story. I mean, I look at, you know, my company wasn't worth $100 million when I went in and we sold it for $1.3 billion. Why did that happen? We had a retention rate of over 99%. And what we did is we could also tell the story. So we could take a major pharma, a major consumer products company, and we would show how we would do the initial sale. And then we would show each year how we were building software and services onto that. And we did it over and over again. So we weren't dependent on any one customer. That's the other thing is you don't want to get to a situation where you put all that energy into one customer and you have a single pony out there. And that's a little scary from a financial point of view. But if you can show that story, I mean, and then show your cost of sales. I mean, like I said, one and a half pipe is all I needed, you know, to be sure that I could hit the numbers that I would set out there. So I'm such a big advocate of customer success and an existing customer base. When I look at companies, I look at the TAM, the market that's addressable for them. And I'm looking at about the ability to land and expand in accounts. Because if you have to go out and just do one sale to every account out there, that's a really expensive proposition. So land and expand customer success. I could probably talk about it all day because I think it's the key to everything that you do. And it has to it has to be in the culture of the company. It can't just be a lone organization. It has to be a mindset that everybody in the organization, I don't care if you're in accounting, you're handling you know, accounts payable, accounts receivable. I would always say, how does what you do impact the customer? And how is the activities that you're doing today impact the objectives that I'm setting at the top of the company? So very, very passionate about that. Excellent. Well, Eileen, you know, let's switch gears a little bit in our last few minutes and talk a little bit about your experiences on the board and particularly having the the software experience and, and technology experience that you have. You know, tell us a little bit about how you leverage in a digital transformation journey, you know, an ability to, to evolve a company from a, a technology perspective when you join a board. You know, is that as big of a part of, you know, of what you do? Is it as important as a audit chair or finance chair, you know, as comparing a digital transformation chair. Tell us a little bit about how that is coming across in the boardrooms today. Yeah, I mean, I look at, you know, first of all, the composition of a board today. You know, we all have a skills matrix and we should be lining our board members up against it. And I think that every company is dealing with digital transformation in some form or another, whether you're in technology or software or not. And I think the majority of your board members have to have some savvy with it. And if you don't, again, it has to become a mindset, right, of how we do things. So I, I think it has to be ingrained across everything that we do. And, you know, I sit on public and private boards. So in a public board, obviously, you know, my role is to make sure that the shareholders' needs and wants are taken care of. And in most cases today, that's about growth and profit, right? You know, You'll see more and more we're moving into more bigger discussions, but we'll stay away from that for right now. So 
the first thing I need to do is understand the strategies and objectives of the CEO and how are they driving down through the organization and how are we using technology to enable. Probably one of the areas that I've had the most impact on my boards over the last 10 years are around product strategy, go-to-market strategy, customer success, and digital is all over every one of them. You know, when you think about product strategy and moving to an agile environment and using all the tools and tricks of the trade there. Again, a lot of CEOs think, oh, I'll just say I'm doing agile and I'll throw some money at it. Again, you have to change the way that you do business. I mean, my sales leader knew that he could sit down with my head of product at any time, but if we were going to move something around, something had to give. So he understood the stories that were out, you know, in that sprint and wouldn't come in and say, just do this, but they would sit down and have, you know, a comprehensive discussion about how you move things around, you could walk down into my development area and you could see my boards lit up and, you know, we were constantly testing. So nobody went home at night if they broke something in the software, right? Mm. So just completely changes the way that you look at it. But my private companies, probably the most important thing is twofold. Number one, what is the investor's thesis, right? Because we all know they have one and it's usually a, you know, four or five year window. And what are the company's objectives and are the two things aligned? And in a lot of cases, my role is to work between management and the investors. And sometimes I have to push the investor a little bit. And sometimes I have to push management a little bit. And keeping technology at the forefront of all that, whether it's internal systems, as I mentioned, or ways that we can disrupt our industry or even disrupt ourselves using technology before a smaller competitor comes along and does it to us. I mean, we're working on one of those situations on one of my boards today. That's great. Yeah, Eileen. Well, Eileen, we are so fortunate to have you with us today and have you take the time with us today. Last question as we close out, you know, if you were speaking with a recent college graduate or a young sales rep, you know, what would be your advice and recommendations about you know, getting into the cloud space, getting into SaaS. And I know that you do this with all your connections back to the universities. And I have to share that you have just been honored with an honorary doctorate from Thomas Jefferson University. So I have to congratulate you for that. What are your closing thoughts? Yeah, you know, I'm going to give you the thoughts that I shared in my commencement speech last right. month. And, and this would be regardless of what you're doing. In today's world, I'm really concerned about the quick judgments that people are making, judging things of today and going back and judging the past based upon today. And there's three things that I talk to the graduates about. And number one was to have an open mind and recognize that there's usually good people on both sides of any debate. And we've got to listen and be willing to think about other people's ideas, number one. We don't have to change ours, but at least be respectful and have an open heart, show some compassion for people and to do it with kindness. And, you know, as you look at a career in the cloud, I don't really know any job that you could be going into that cloud isn't gonna to touch you in some way, right? Exactly. Whether you're going into engineering, industry, retail, it's everywhere. So I think that, you know, I'm a lifelong learner, critical thinker, so I think that doing the things that I said and really focusing in on how to get value from it. It's a value game at the end because the technology is going to change. 
Eileen, I, I love what you just said, because going back to something we talked about earlier, the cowboys and cells and walking through walls, and we had this Glenglary Ginross AOIS BBC closing. And the actual acronym I use today is ABL, and it totally mirrors what you just said, AOIS BBL learning and now listening. Always be learning and always be listening. Eileen, thank you so much for being our guest today. I cannot tell you how much we appreciate it. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying our guest and the content that we provide, we would mean the world to us if you could subscribe to our channel on your favorite podcast app and provide us your recommendations and your rating on how you think this podcast can help you with your career journey. Eileen, Mark, thank you so much for today's episode. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Eileen. Cheers.